0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. And once again, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 26. When you get there, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Again, Exodus chapter 26, verse 1. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, 4 cubits. All the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the, in, in the first set. Likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be the opposite of one another, and you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to the other with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single hole. You shall also make the curtains of goat's hair for a tent over the tabernacle. Uh, eleven curtains shall you make. The length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain, four cubits. Uh, the eleven curtains shall be the same size. You shall couple five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and the sixth curtain you shall double over at the front of the tent. You shall make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in the second set. You shall make 50 clasps of bronze and put the clasps into the loops and couple the tent together that it may be a single whole. And the part that remains of the curtain of the tent, the half curtain that remains, shall hang over the back of the tabernacle, And the extra that remains in the length of the curtains, the cubit on the one side, and the cubit on the other side, shall hang over the sides of the tabernacle. On this side and that side to cover it. And you shall make for the tent a covering of tanned ram skins and a covering of goat skins on top. You shall make upright upright frames for the tabernacle of acacia wood. Ten cubits shall be the length of a frame, and a cubit and a half the breadth of each frame. There shall be two tenons in each frame for fitting together. You shall... So shall you do for all the frames of the tabernacle. You shall make the frames for the tabernacle, 20 frames for the south side, and 40 bases of silver you shall make under the 20 frames. Two bases under one frame for its two tenons, and two bases under the next frame for its two tenons. And for the second side of the tabernacle, on the north side, 20 frames, and there are 40 bases of silver, two bases under one frame, um, rear of the tabernacle, Uh, excuse me, rear of the tabernacle westward, you shall make six frames and you shall make two frames for corners of the tabernacle in the rear. They shall be separate of the, excuse me. They shall be separate beneath, but joined at the top at the first ring. Thus shall it be with both of them. They shall form the two corners and there shall be eight frames with their bases of silver, 16 bases, two bases under one frame and two bases under another frame. You shall make bars of acacia wood. 5 for the frames of the one side of the tabernacle and 5 bars for the frames of the other side of the tabernacle and 5 bars for the frames of the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall overlay the bars with gold. Then you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil, and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for them, or excuse me, shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia, and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. Providence, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all may be seated.
1: <laughs> Good morning.
0: You guys give a hand clap for Scott. What a
1: great job he did. <clears throat> it's 36 verses of blueprints. <laughs> Whenever he asked me what what scripture it is, I said, you know, Exodus 26. He's like, well, what verses? All of them. <laughs> Good morning, my name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it is your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're glad that you're here. Um, We're going to be jumping into uh, Exodus, and we've been in this series all year long. We're in the back third of it, talking about the building of the tabernacle, and then uh, ultimately, uh, finally at the end of Exodus, where the tabernacle is finally uh, built, and the Spirit of God comes down and dwells with the people of Israel in the tent of witness. But before we jump into the text, I wanted to pray for us. So if you will bow your heads, I'll pray that the Lord would speak to us through his word. Father, thank you. Thank you that we have the great gift and privilege to come before you. Both humbly and confidently, knowing that you hear our prayers now. And maybe most importantly, God, that we can trust your presence is here with us. Help us help that to set in with us this morning, that the promise of the gospel is that because of Christ, you are here with us, and we can speak with you as a man speaks with a friend just like Moses did. And we come not in our own name, but we come in the name of the only Son of God who's covered us, cleansed us, and made atonement for us. And we do ask that you would meet the needs of each and every one of us individually in this room the ones that we know about and the ones we don't. That, God, you would meet us here collectively as your body and we would be renewed and encouraged and refreshed and, and strengthened and emboldened to carry with us the gospel message that has so changed us and transformed us. We pray, my God, that now you would begin to turn our eyes from those things that are transient and temporal to those things that are eternal and that we would leave out of here this morning, not having merely gone through ritualistic religious observation, but that in our hearts, we would know that we came and met with you as you have promised in your word. And so we trust you and we ask all these things in Jesus' good name, amen, amen. So it's important now this chapter kind of, uh, one of the reasons I wanted to read the whole chapter, it, it's the construction of the tabernacle as a tent the exterior of the tabernacle so so far we've only talked about some of the main instruments that would go inside the tabernacle like the ark of the covenant or the lampstand or the table of the bread of presence this chapter is all about what exact how exactly will the tent of witness or the tabernacle itself how will it be constructed how will it be built and before we go really dive into it, because there's a lot of details, there's no way we're going to get into all of it. As One of the reasons I also wanted to read it is you guys see how detailed all of this is with you know, 50 loops and 11 curtains and 6 and 5. And the one that has 6 curtains is going to be an overlapping, but they need to be one whole. And all of these things are significant and meaningful. I wish we would get into all of it. And prayerfully, maybe we will. Um, Providence Road, maybe we'll do classes on this. But I kind of want to focus on the mega theme of the tabernacle and its exterior. And in order for us to understand it, we have to start with knowing what the tabernacle was meant for. It is the house, the mobile house, okay, for God's presence with the people. It's kind of interesting. God decided to live in a mobile home in the wilderness, okay? That's what the tent of witness is. That's what the tabernacle is. God has desired To be with his people he's brought them out of the land of Egypt and now they're in the wilderness and he says I'm going to make a way that my presence can abide with you as we make our way to the promised land so if you have tabernacle in the Old Testament exodus story the temple is merely a permanence, a sense of permanence of what the tabernacle was mobile and this is really important because when we move into the New Testament we're going to find is that not only is Christ going to be a symbolic of the tabernacle, temporal, but that in Revelation 21 and 22 what we see is that in the final words of the Bible, Jesus is the very presence of God. He is the temple of God. He's the lamp of the city. And that we follow suit and we follow his example by being tabernacles on earth now. That's why the Bible calls you pilgrims and sojourners on the earth, right? that we're tabernacling now on this side of things, and that that one day we'll be that permanent dwelling place with our God. So we follow Jesus in that way, just like the temple was permanent, then we will be permanently with God in his presence. But the reason I mention all of this is because it's a small thing for us that we could easily pass by to say that God had decided to dwell with his people. His presence was going to dwell here. And yet we've gone through this and we've seen just how powerful how majestic the presence of God was so much so that the children of Israel were terrified. They didn't want to kind of even walk near the presence. They said, Moses, you go in there. We're going to stay out here. We know that God had already told them that if anyone came and even touched the mountain where his presence was, that they would die. And so now what we're seeing is that God is not just going to come down one time, but he's going to perpetually dwell with his people here and meet them in this tent of witness. And the reason I start here is to ask this question, if that's true, then what man gets to decide how to construct God's house? Like, who's the architect that gets to draw those blueprints? If you really think about this, if God's going to have a house that he says he's going to live in, who gets to decide what that house looks like? The only answer that should satisfy us is that God is the only one who gets to decide. That's what this is in Exodus. God's saying, I'm not only going to come and dwell with you, but I've got a plan for how my house needs to look. Only God himself can design a place that would house his own very presence. That's why it shouldn't surprise us when we see what God does in the Exodus story. He doesn't merely tell Moses to build it. He says, and here's how. And he's really meticulous. God has this line Be sure to do everything that I tell you as I have patterned it for you on this mountain. But it obviously goes further than this. God followed this exact pattern in Genesis when he designed, crafted, and created mankind by his own very hand. If you remember in the Genesis story, of how God created the heavens and the earth on the sixth day. He creates man and then breathes life into his very nostrils. God was the one who created and crafted and designed mankind, male and female, and then he breathed life into him, saying, My very presence will dwell in you. So that means, listen to me, you got to hear this because if not, you don't get the tabernacle. You and I were created to commune with God and to have the very life-giving spirit and presence of God dwelling in us. You you have to understand this to understand the tabernacle. Now here's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. We all know the story. After the fall, the garden of Eden is shut. They are exiled out of the garden. Do you remember what it says in Genesis chapter 3 verse 24, it says that then God puts out a guardian cherub, cherubim. This is key because we're going to talk about what happens in the tabernacle, right? The cherubim is one of the guardian angels and he gives him a great sword and he stands at the tree of life and does not permit any man to come into the garden anymore and be in his presence and dwell with his presence or to take of the tree of life and eat it. So the question is twofold. Well, Number one, why would God do that? And the answer to that is really simple, because sin cannot commune with God, because they are the antithesis of one another. We've seen that throughout the book of Exodus, holiness and sinfulness. So there has to be atonement be made in order for them to come to be one. And then secondarily, how is God going to commune with man again? Well, that's what the tabernacle is all about. This is God's plan. And what's really interesting is that the Israelites see this, and they're obviously in awe of it. It's wonderful. What they don't get is this is just the first step of many steps in God's plan that culminates in the person of Christ. The tabernacle is not the end game. The temple is not the end game. The kings and the priests aren't the end game. Christ is all of those. He's the end game. But the Jews miss this when Jesus comes. Jesus keeps showing them how he is not only the great king that comes from the line of Judah, but he's the great priest after the order of Melchizedek, and he's the great tabernacle who dwells amongst us, and he's going to be the temple that is the place that we reside, and he's the sacrifice that went into the Holy of Holies and let shed his blood, and he just keeps going, and they don't see this. But for us, we need to see that what's happening in the tabernacle is God's first step toward his presence dwelling again with mankind so with that in mind let's go into the design of the tent if you're going through it you can kind of look at this i'm not going to reread through it because i think we can all agree that was pretty hefty okay so i'm going to give you the spark notes version okay that's what we're going to do here give you guys the little cheat sheet what exactly did god say the exterior of the tabernacle should look like well there's lots to it but here's the majors number one he says you should weave together four different kinds of curtains to cover the structure. This would be the overarching cover of the structure of the tent, four different covers that get laid upon it, okay? Number two, he tells them that they need to have three wooden walls. Now, there's much wood on those walls. He tells them how to build them. But there's three wooden walls, the sides and the back of the tent. The front would be open, only covered with a veil, which we'll see in a moment. And those wooden walls would be sit, they would be sat in silver socket bases. So they'd have little pegs at the bottom, and they would sit into these silver socket bases, and then the bars would hold the tent together on all sides. You'd have bars that would hold and keep the structure together on the sides, bars on the back, and then each one would have a bar that would go all the way to the end, right? So that keeps the whole of the structure together. And then finally, the Bible records two different veils, one is the veil, the most beautiful veil, over the Holy of Holies. And he says this is what will separate the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, from the holy place. So this is where the Ark of the Covenant resides in the mercy seat, where God says, I'll meet with you there, then a veil, and then where the priest would go in with the table at the bread of presence, the lampstand, and then the next veil, the second veil, that was supposed to be the entrance to the tent. You can look this up online. You can see a lot of different pictures of it. I'll be honest, I've been neck deep in that. Some of them are very helpful. Some of them are really confusing, and they don't help at all. And I don't know which one's right. Sometimes I have to go back and read, and then it only gets me further on. But here's where I want to start. I want to start with asking, what's the point of the silver socket basis? Other than the practical purpose, which is to keep the structure solid. The reason I want to start here is because there's something interesting to be said about where the silver comes from. Where does this metal come from? And if this be the foundational stability of the structure itself, well, what's the spiritual significance behind it? So if you have your Bibles, keep your thumb in Exodus 26, but just take a right-hand turn very quickly, Exodus chapter 30, and I want to read verses 11 through 16. Exodus chapter 30, verses 11 through 16. So here's my question. How do they get the silver for it? How do, they, how do the constructors of the ark get the silver for the bases? We know that there's a contribution that's been asked, but there's a particular line here in Exodus 30 that tells us exactly how they get the silver for the bases, and I think it tells us everything we need to know about the very foundation of the tabernacle itself. So let's read Exodus chapter 30, and I'm going to read verses 11 through 16. It says this, The Lord said to Moses, When you take the census of the people of Israel... Then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, and that there be no plague among them when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 gerahs. half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement, this is key, to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel, and ye shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord, so as to make atonement for your lives. So what happens here? God tells Moses to take a census of the people. But when they take that census, the requirement is that everyone, and not on the basis of their income, not on the ba- everyone gives the exact same price as what's, quote, atonement money as ransom for their lives. And that that particularly is supposed to go into building of the tabernacle. Later, what you'll see is the refurbishment of the tabernacle and the building of the temple. So this goes all the way into King Josiah finds out that they've hid the law in the temple and the temple's in disrepair because they have not done this in a long time. Very quickly I wish I had a a ton more time to talk about it but there's a one story at the end of David's life where he takes a census right if you've never read this before it's really interesting he takes a census of the people and God comes to him and says because you've taken this census you have to choose whether or not there's going to be a plague on the people I'm going to destroy the people basically says I'm going to bring judgment down on you and if you just read that The reason for that given in most commentaries is like something along the lines of, well, he didn't seek the face of God before he made a decision. Which is true, but it kind of feels like, well, don't the kings make a lot of decisions without, you know, kind of making that call? Happens a lot in the Old Testament. This is the explanation as to why David received the judgment of God. He took a census, but he required no atonement ransom money. He took a census of them, did not obey God's word and his law, and therefore there was going to be a price to be paid for that. Now, what's the point of that? That seems harsh. The point is this. The foundation for the very tabernacle is built upon atonement, a price being paid, and that each human being, whether they're rich or poor, there's a price that has to be paid. They need atonement. It's not like just the very wealthy people are very bad and evil, and they need atonement, but the poor people, they've received their bad in life, and so they don't really need atonement. they got to pay less. Everyone pays the same price because everyone needs atonement because the offended party is not each other, but it's God. So there's an atonement price paid. And that is the very silver that's used to line the walls of the tabernacle as its foundation. One way to look at this is the entirety of the structure is held together by an atonement ransom from the people. The walls are set in sockets of silver. The bars exist to keep the walls in that very silver base. And so we should say, without the walls, the tent itself will not stand. And so for the Christian, it must be said, without atonement, you will not stand. (laughs) Without a foundation, understanding of Christ our atonement, we are no tabernacle for the Spirit of God. Which is why Paul could say confidently that no man could call themselves a, a, a Christian or a disciple without saying that Jesus is Lord. Unless Jesus is the Lord and he's made atonement for your sin... And there is no house for the spirit to dwell. Does this make sense? Now, what about the curtains and the veils? So remember, curtains being the coverings, veils being the distinguishing uh, doorways into new chambers. They have a sort of layering effect. From the inside, the veil guarding the Holy of Holies is extravagantly beautiful, along with all the contents in the chambers. That's where the glory resides, right? That's where God said, I'll meet you. As we work our way outward with the veil at the entrance and then the curtains, they become less and less beautiful and they become more and more rugged and rough to deal with the wilderness weather. The very last curtain at the very top, I don't like how the ESV translated, it says goat skins, but the old King James says badger skins. This is rough. The tabernacle from the outside would have been uggo. Okay, it'd have been ugly. It wouldn't have been pretty and beautiful. You'd have to go in to get the beauty. The outside would have been like, okay that's where their God lives okay you have to see this currently in our society we have um, and it's not just ours but I would say maybe ours more than any other in human history we have an obsession with the public life obsession with outward perceptions of people and we have overwhelmingly a negligence of the inner life Uh, I call it in short like it's an obsession of the looks and the likes you know how we look to others whether that's physically look or for those of us who are not blessed by god in this, in this arena how we what kind of perception we give to others and if we're not even good at that then it's how many likes can we get on social media with our avatar per, our avatar person that we've created you know there's a Uh, a new Netflix special on a football player named Mente Tao. I remember this very well. He was a linebacker for Notre Dame, and he got what's called catfished. I don't know if you're familiar with this term. But basically, he thought he had a girlfriend who he was engaged to and he was going to be married to. It turns out that this person was a boy. It didn't really even exist, and he thought he was marrying a, a girl who was actually a guy and lived in Hawaii. And they had all sorts of ESPN specials on the guy. But how this person was presenting themselves to him was not the actual person. And it's easy to be hard on that on that, on that that person because, man, that's ridiculous. And this guy basically had his career kind of uh, catapulted into nothing because of it. But what that person was doing is what many people do every single day in gradations and variations. Whether we pretend to have a whole different name or a whole different identity, gender, whatever it may be, we're all pretending at some level. And the reason for that is because we have an obsession with the outer life, the perceptions of the way others see us meanwhile here's what's crazy meanwhile many are sounding the alarm in our in our country about the mental health crisis I don't know if you've seen this a lot of talk has been put on blaming the pandemic for the the rise in mental health diagnoses and mental illness but I would say a cursory look at the numbers would prove that this has been an issue long before COVID ever came along these are some statistics that I found from the Mental Health Foundation And for the most part, they are in the year 2018 and 19. That would be prior to COVID. And I want to read these to you because they're kind of jarring. One in 25 adults in the United States live with serious mental illness. One in 25. Now that may sound like that's not that many. It's so many people. Just over 10 million Americans live with more than one addiction or more than one mental health illness diagnosed. 10 million. That's a lot. This is the one that really shocked me, though. About 4% of U.S. adults, by the way, it was somewhere between 3 and 6 I just put 4% to be conservative. About 4% of U.S. adults over the age of 18 have had serious thoughts about suicide in the year 2018. That's incredibly tragic to read that. Now, the question is, why are we going to this kind of dark place, and is there a way out of it? Now, I'm going to make a difficult and jarring statement, and, you know, Far be it for me to ever do that. But I think the numbers are probably far worse than this. I say this because I'm convinced that many who struggle in this area are actually a part of a vanishing minority of people. Um, Most people have mastered the art of ignoring what's happening internally altogether and never even broaching that subject. See, the people that we see here are the people who are willing to kind of peek in i think there's many who have just shut that door all together and been really good at just medicating the external many who struggle with mental illness have finally taken some time to stop the manicuring of the outside of their lives and they've peered into the inner chambers of their own heart and here's the reality of this the reality is when you do that without the covering and atoning blood of christ that's not just a difficult place to be it's a treacherous terrain to walk without him once you go down that dark hole it's difficult to get out unless you have a savior because the deeper you go within yourself the more you find out you don't like and despite thousands upon thousands of articles written about mental health billions of dollars spent to solve the issue I think that we're ignoring the deepest actual cause of these things right under our nose now as an asterisk I'm not saying that there aren't medical reasons what i'm saying is i think a primary cause is a spiritual cause that we just completely ignore because we we focus on the external so we can we can handle the external we feel like it's within our control but when you start getting into things like the spiritual realm we're like well that's just too far from me i'd rather just not even talk about it and i think the church has to talk about it here's the two things i see a we become a culture obsessed with the outer life largely willing to ignore the inner life, which I would say is our spiritual life. But two, when suffering and hardship causes us to finally have to peer inwardly, it can be so dark and daunting that we scarce even find a way out. And so we have many in our culture that are dying on the vine, as it were, because they haven't found their way out of that place. And we don't have an answer because of our secular society. We want to keep it physical, material, not spiritual. So we just say, let's throw more money at it. Let's throw more articles at it. Let's throw more medical studies at it. Let's throw more drugs at it. But what we're finding is, at least based on the statistics, that's not the answer, which means what we need is a Savior to go down into the depths and draw us out and to preach about that Savior. The path of healing is laid out for us in Scripture, and there's an invitation from God here, just as the tabernacle is an invitation into his presence that God's made a way there's an invitation to not only experience healing and wholeness, but then to offer it to the world around us as well. Remember that not only does Christ offer us to walk in the light as he is in the light, then he says, I'm going to make you the light and I'm going to help you to go out into the world. So that's my prayer for us this morning. And I want to go into how do we handle this together? How do we approach this together? Well, to start Christian, the answer is, is to not ignore our souls by the decorating of the outside of our lives, nor is it to try to fight the battle of our souls on our own strength. So we don't ignore it by decorating the outside, but we also don't dive into the darkness without Christ <laughs> and try to fight the, the flames of hell with a water pistol, right? That's not wise either. These are worldly tactics. The Bible says you are in the world, but you're not of it. Don't bring worldly tactics to this fight. Peter called it the difference between outward adorning and inward adorning. I want to read to you 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4. He says this, and he's speaking particularly to the wives, but but I wanna I want to tell you why I think that there's there's some wisdom to be said here about us being the bride of Christ, and even if you're a man in there and being able to apply certain principles of this. There's the very practical to women, and I'll tell you why, and then there's the general that I think we can all glean from. He says, Wives, do not let your adorning be external the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Now, first of all, why does Peter first speak to women? Well, because this is very simple. Women have been given more outward beauty than men. And all the men say, amen. This is just a fact. Women are more beautiful than men are outwardly okay you when you look at me or if you look at my wife you get the difference okay no one does magazine covers with me on the front okay unless you're trying to make a point an ironic point about chubby dads women are more beautiful and therefore what comes with that on the up on the opposite side is a temptation to make much of the beauty and make it internally narcissistic okay and that women are much more prone to this with external beauty now those of you women who are hearing that, you're like, well, you haven't been on social media recently. I've seen some mint, And I agree. That's when you know a culture's really gone wrong, okay? Now, here's what I want to say to all the women in the house. There's nothing wrong with your new outfit, okay? If you're like, he's judging me right now, you know? <laughs> here's what I'm saying. If the total hours that are spent on, on you looking... uh for your new outfit if they far exceeded the attention that you spent considering your soul that's where you need to ask yourself well what's going on here that's all I'm saying that's what that's what Peter's saying he's not saying that you shouldn't be pretty he's not saying that you ought to just stay plain you know don't don't ever try to look beautiful no is the inner beauty of your life more important to you than the external beauty of your life do you spend that time thinking I who I am internally is more important than who I am externally at the end of the day, the outward adorning can be ways for us to simply medicate the spiritual bankruptcy that's there internally. Now, men, I want you to consider this exhortation. So, pull this principle out generally. We're called the bride of Christ, okay? So, men should consider on maybe perhaps some other fronts as well our self exaltation, self presentation, self love. It has to be put in check by the attention that we pay to the inward adorning of our own hearts. If the amount of time that you spend worrying about your friend's approval, your boss's approval, your neighbor's approval, far exceeds the amount of time you spend considering the opinion of King Jesus, then maybe it's become a problem. You see, what Peter says there is these things are precious in the sight of God, your Savior. They're precious in God's sight. But many of us have completely abandoned caring about what's precious to God or what his opinion is because we've become obsessed with other people's opinion. You see, God told Samuel, as Samuel was surveying all of the brothers of David and figuring out which one he was going to anoint as king, none of them was God's answer. It was the son that was out in the fields that looked nothing like his brothers. And God tells Samuel, I do not see as man sees. I look upon the heart of a man. I know him inwardly. And David is the king of Israel. The most important things about you cannot be defined externally. Now, this is so important in our political day that makes you convinces you you must find a tribe about your external attributes that you attach to how you No, the most important things about you cannot be seen with physical eyes they can't be experienced with the five senses the most important thing about you is your inward adorning whether you have put on Christ that's the most important thing about you the tabernacle is a witness to us that the house that God designed for himself paid for with his own blood and desires to fill his very presence, fill with its very presence, is not a house of outward decadence. Think about this. Every pagan temple would have been very, very gorgeous, right? And don't get me wrong, you get to the temple later on, the place of permanence, it's pretty beautiful. But the tabernacle is the one-to-one correlation of how you and I live as Christians today. Exiles on the earth, headed to the temple. So what is the tabernacle? Ugly on the outside, everything internally adorned. The place that God wanted to put his presence was not about outward decadence, but inward holiness, inward beauty. And that's what the call should be for us. Don't manicure the outward life. It's not as important as you paying attention to your own soul. Or as Jesus would say it, what does it gain a man, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? So if you have all the externals, but you lose your soul. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. He called them whitewashed tombs. Think about that whitewashed tombs. He said, on the outside, there's flowers, the tombs decorated with ornaments, but on the inside, you're just dead man's bones. That's what he called the Pharisees. That's an intense claim, isn't it? By the way, that's not like a morning devotion. Matthew 23 should not be just used as like, sip your coffee and drink, you know, read of the woes of the Pharisees. That's a harsh word. So how do we attend to the state of our soul? Here's what I want to say. We do not attend to our inner life by trying to run into the darkness on our own power. If we do, we will find ourselves obsessing over the state of things when we get there. Have you ever felt this? Have you ever tried to run into the inner chambers of your own heart and assess things you realize it's darker than you could ever imagine? You start feeling condemned. You start feeling really guilty. You start feeling worse. You're like, I thought that when I watched the Disney movie and they said, follow your heart, I went into my heart and it ended up being like a cave of, of dungeons. I felt worse. I didn't feel better. What's interesting about some of those Disney movies is they actually give you that indication. You remember, when Aladdin goes down to get the lamp, it's not exactly like a carnival down there, okay? We think about when the genie shows up. Before that, it's a a lion's mouth, and there's lava everywhere. That's a great depiction of what is happening inwardly until Christ comes to shine his light and clean house. So we don't go inwardly without Jesus, because we will find ourselves trapped in there. That's what happens much with mental illness depression, discouragement, despondency. We find ourselves trapped in there, don't know how to make ourselves better. Well, the answer is we can't make ourselves better. We need a savior. The invitation of the gospel, how do we attend to our inner life? It's to return to the foundation upon which our new life was built in the first place. And that is the contemplation of God's atonement for our sin in Christ Jesus. To think and meditate on what God has done for us in the person of Christ. Only a true and regular consideration of the cross can bring us back, can bring light back into our inner life. Now hear me on this. Yes, it's going to cause us to think about the consequences of sin, the sinfulness of sin, that we're sinners. But that's not all it will do if we bring Jesus with us. Because there's another side. It will also show us the depths of God's mercy and his grace in the person of Jesus and that he loves us enough to go to the cross for us and bear that weight for us. It'll bring us to the cross, not just to see our sin, but to see our Savior and the life and joy and peace that he offers us in himself. God told Moses, I want you to embroider a cherubim, which are the guardian angels. I want you to embroider them on the curtain, separating the holy of holies from the holy place. They were also, the cherubim were knitted into the very fabric of the first curtain that went over the tabernacle. Well, what was the point of that? Remember the garden. It was a reminder to every priest and every person in Israel who saw the tabernacle being set up that there is a separation between you and me because of sin and it's your doing, not mine. Now, apart from Christ, isn't that a heavy word? It is a heavy word. But for the Christian, it's not just a heavy word. It also should bring immense worship because we know that now the cherubim no longer stands. This veil no longer stands between us and the presence of God. I want to read to you Matthew 27. You don't have to turn there, but it should be up behind me. Matthew 27. Listen to what happened on the cross as Christ was being crucified. Now from the sixth hour, that would have been noon, by the way. So the Jews have a different time clock. This would have been high noon. Should be sunny. It ain't sunny there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour three hours and about the ninth hour jesus cried out with a loud voice eli eli lama sabachthani that is my god my god why have you forsaken me so he's feeling the forsakenness of god and some of the bystanders hearing it said this man's calling to elijah and one of them at once ran and he took a sponge and he filled it with sour wine and he put it on a reed and he gave it to him to drink but the others said wait Let us see whether Elijah is going to come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. So now Christ has died. Listen to this line. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That's the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. It's torn in two from top to bottom. Meaning that that reminder that there's a separation because of sin Christ giving up the ghost there was no longer a separation his body was the veil torn for us so that now we have access to go into the very presence of God again as God intended when he created us Jesus we go through when Jesus says I am the door I want you guys to think about him being the temple veil torn he's the way that we go into God's presence we go through the torn veil we go through the body of Christ For the Christian, considering this fact, should make us all the more full of awe and praise for Jesus. He opened up the Holy of Holies to us, that we might not just come meagerly. The Bible tells us in Hebrews we come confidently, we come boldly because we come in the name of the Son of God. Here's what I want to say. What a difference it would make if every Christian took this to heart and rejected the world's insistence that the most important things about us are our external attributes. How much would the world change if just Christians decided we were going to reject that idea and remember that the most important things about us have to do with the state of our soul before our God, which is secure in the person of Christ so we can be confident and courageous despite all of our flaws and failures. You see, when we go with Jesus into our inner life and you see all of the darkness, you also have with you the new contractor who's making renovations. And he's not scared of the hell that's down there. He says, listen, I know it looks kind of bad in here, but don't worry. I got work to do in here. And he's changing everything. So it's not depression, but it's courage. It's not despondency. It's confidence that we begin to have when we meditate on the cross of Christ. No matter how dark it may seem, we must be reminded that the invitation into the holy of holies is not on the basis of our works, it's on the basis of Christ's. It's not on the basis of what you've done as a priest on the way to cleanse yourself. It's on the basis of what Christ has done, our great high priest, to cleanse us by his righteousness. And so you have a standing invitation into the very presence of God, despite the fact that you don't deserve that. You haven't deserved it on your best day. You're not going to deserve it on your worst day. But you know, you haven't even incrementally moved on the linear scale of not deserving. You're just in fully in the pool of not deserving. And Christ is fully in the pool of deserving and worthy. And he's the one who invites you. So this morning, you're welcomed by God into his very presence. I wish we could spend a lot more time about speaking about Jesus' example that he gives to us. Jesus' life was full of one, not outwardly adorned, but inwardly adorned. The book of Isaiah says that Jesus was not beautiful to look upon. that He wasn't a handsome man. Jesus didn't spend his time trying to hang out with the Pharisees. He even mocked them because they prayed with their long, beautiful robes, and they looked great. Jesus went to the wilderness. His best friend was his cousin, who probably looked a lot like Haggard off of Harry Potter, your skinny version, because he never ate. Just Haggard beard, ate bugs, lived in the wilderness, you know, That's his buddies. Jesus said, I have no home or place to lay my head. We would do well to learn from Jesus about the internal adorning of our souls. I'm going to close with one more verse. This is Acts chapter number three, verses 17 through 26. Acts chapter number three, verses 17 through 26. These are the words of Peter as he's preaching in the early church. And this is the invitation that I want to give you. I want to really hone in on one line, but I want to read the whole story. uh, Peter is preaching to the the fellow priests and the rulers of Israel right after they crucified Christ. He says this, Now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, and so did your rulers. He's telling them about crucifying Jesus. I know you didn't know what you were doing. But what God foretold by the mouth of all of his prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Listen to this line. What is the result of repentance? Repentance that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send, listen to this, the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Now, there's so much here, but I really want to focus on three things. Number one, the invitation to, into the very presence of God through repentance is an invitation to being refreshed. It's an invitation to life. It's an invitation away from the despondency that sin in this world brings. There's no better invitation. There's no medication that offers what repentance brings. I say that with great confidence, not as a slight against any medication, as a positive for the gospel. Can we all agree? There's nothing like the salve of the great physician. There's nothing like his diagnosis and then his healing. We can get nothing like what repentance offers It brings a clear cleanness to our conscience and we leave out feeling the burdens that no man can see fall off of us. Depression is like feeling that you're chained. And when you stand before the holy God and he says you're free, whom the son of man sets free is free indeed. There's no feeling like that. You can't get that feeling in the physical. That's the offer. That's the offer of the tabernacle on the basis of atonement. Come to me and I'll make you free. I'll take off the weights. How can you, how can I stand up here and say that? How how can you say that? Because what Peter says there is heaven must receive the Christ who is appointed for you. Why must heaven receive? He's saying it's a law in heaven. Now the Christ must be received into the heavenlies to come on our behalf and intercede for us that we might receive his promises. Why? Because of the blood of the cross. He must be received. He cannot be rejected. He will never be rejected. It's a promise that God will never reject. That's why your prayers, how do you know that they're heard? Not because of you. It's because Christ can't be rejected. When you say, I come in the name of Jesus, he has to be received. The Father's heard you. But, Court, you don't know my reputation. I don't care. It matters not to me because it's not on your basis. It's Christ who's received, and he'll never be turned down. So when you come to God in the name of Christ, the times of refreshing he has promised are all on the basis of his son. And you can be confident when you come to him. You're not receiving the punishment. He already received it. You're not receiving the chastisement. He already received it. You're not receiving the judgment. He already received it. You're receiving all the things that Christ rightly deserved but didn't get and gave to you instead. Let today be the day we turn attention to our souls, that we enter through the veil that was torn for us with confidence. Because of him, we will not be destroyed. We're going to be welcomed. It's The door's open for us. The presence of God, I want you to hear me, is here with us today because of Christ. Isn't that amazing when we gather? It's not just we're going to be like, hey, band, come up and let's sing because that's what we do. No, the very presence of God is here with us today. So let us receive the times of refreshing promised by the Apostle Peter. And the last thing I'll say is this, as we take of communion, I want you to think about the broken body of Christ. It's that torn veil. Union with him is we're eating of the communion, we're, we're reminded that we got union with him. Where he is, that's where we are. You may feel like you're in the dungeons, but spiritually, you know what's true of you? Where Christ is seated, that's where you are. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? When we take of the juice and think about the blood of Christ, that's the atonement. Your whole life's built upon the atonement. How can you be sure that you're not gonna crumble? Not because of your strength, because it's built on the atonement of Christ. It's a very strong structure. You're in in the ark, baby, (laughs) and you didn't build it. Christ did. He's a good carpenter, and he built it to last. So this morning, I wanna invite you into that. I wanna invite you into that prayer, but most importantly, I wanna invite you into that experience with God, which can only happen through the blood of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for my friends under the sound of my voice and I say, if any in this room has had an inward turmoil about them, that they have felt chained, they don't know how to get out, they feel depressed, despondent. God, do not let the enemy have his way this morning, but instead, Holy Spirit, would you invade their very heart of hearts Go with them to that place that they feel that they are and bring liberty to their captive mind. Bring wholeness this morning, my God, and healing. I pray that there be real joy because we know that it's not something that we need to do to fix it, but something you have done. And so I pray for the peace that only you can bring, Holy Spirit. I pray for the joy only you can bring, Lord Jesus. And give us the faith that we don't even have when we feel that weak. I pray against the enemy who is a liar and a thief that he would be silenced by your word and instead there would be great joy that'd be the result this morning. We submit to you, Lord. Let our songs of our mouth align with the truth of our hearts, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen.